Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from this episode's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly Risk Strategies. Our first sponsor, Live Oak Bank, is a seasoned SMB lender providing SBA and conventional financing for search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire lower middle market companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. Our second, Hood & Strong, is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search, acquisition, and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe at jzhou at hoodstrong.com. And our third sponsor, Oberly Risk Strategies, is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Felker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly-risk.com or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Chris Williams. I was introduced to Chris via Justin Vogt about a year ago. And since then, Chris and I have talked monthly about his search, thoughts on running a small company, the podcast, and all things work and life. I've really enjoyed getting to know him and I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast finally. Chris recently bought a bookkeeping and accounting outsourcing business in California called System 6, which had 24 employees and around a million dollars in EBITDA at the time of acquisition. As Chris has spent more time in the CEO seat, it's been fun hearing about his ideas, challenges, and new growth plans for the company, and I'm excited to share them on the podcast. Over the course of this episode, Chris and I talk about why he chose to buy a small company versus continuing private equity, the daily life of being a CEO, building a team around flexibility, and growth opportunities ahead. Also, Chris is looking to build a specialty in searcher-owned companies for bookkeeping and accounting. 
If this is an area you need help in, definitely reach out to Chris at chris at system6.com and tell him you heard him on Think Like an Owner. Good to talk to you, Chris, and have you on the podcast. We've actually talked extensively over the last, I want to say, year, year and a half on a monthly basis. So it's been fun to keep in touch as your search has progressed and you got under LOI and different businesses and they fell through or and then this one succeeded and you finally got in the seat and now you've been talking about running your business. It's been fun to see like the full evolution as you go. So I've, I've really enjoyed that. So thanks for sharing that journey, but but also be excited to hear about or at least have you share that journey more publicly on the podcast here and explain a little bit about what you do and what you, why you decided to search and all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. It's exciting to be here. Likewise, right back at you. It's been fun just talking to you and kudos to Justin, my good friend from school for introducing us and you know seeing the stuff you've launched, right? Operator's Handbook a couple months ago. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. It's you know, thank you a lot for this podcast and what you've done. It's been great for me to continue to get different exposure with different people in the small business world. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's been definitely fun to keep chatting. And it's definitely been one of the one of my favorite parts of this past year has been getting to know folks on a more regular basis, especially you and Justin. You guys are both great examples of that. Yeah, he, he's a good friend and like great to have him bouncing ideas around. And I think it's a cool community we, we've ended up in. So thanks again for everything you're doing for it. So look, I have not a super unique background to small business acquisition world. Yeah, I graduated school, went straight into investment banking, did a couple of years of that in New York, and then. I'd grown up with family in California. So I'd actually spent a lot of time on the West Coast in my summers and got a job opportunity to move out in 2015 to San Francisco for a private equity job. So I moved out and did three years in private equity at TPG in San Francisco. I was on the real estate team, so a little bit different. But at the end of the day, you know, we were buying real estate-backed businesses. So businesses that you know owned a significant portfolio of real estate. So it was very much a real estate transaction environment, but also kind of middle market private equity because the businesses we were buying had management teams and regional and you know local staff that, that was involved in transactions as well. So it wasn't just single assets. Had a great three years there. I thought long and hard about staying on, but ultimately felt like I was 25 or 26 at the time, didn't exactly know what I wanted to do long term. Spent some time inside one of our portfolio companies towards the end of my time there and really loved it. And that sparked some of my interest in getting more inside business, not just investing in them. But really felt like a lot of people coming out of you know firms like that are going to business school. So it was something in front of me. And ultimately, it was really two reasons. One, like continue to explore career path. And two, felt like I'd learn a lot personally. And that's what ultimately pushed me to apply to business school. And then was super lucky to get into Stanford, be able to stay and keep my life in California going. And you know, what, four years later, I'm still in California, still in the Bay Area. I love it. My life is now here. And I'm really excited to now be operating and trying to grow a, a small business. Was there a moment when you worked at the portfolio company that you remember distinctly or more clearly as the moment where you were you became a lot more excited about the idea of running a business yourself? Yeah, I mean, I haven't thought about it. But just as soon as you said that, there's a woman named Melissa. And I just remember she was sort of like, mid-level on the finance and operations team. This was a 100-person business in terms of you know, the headcount across regional and sort of corporate. And we were helping put in place institutional reporting, lender reporting for the first time. But I just remember like talking with her for 20 minutes about her kids applying to college and 
a lot of that was based on like college football and which schools he wanted to go root for their teams. And just like that really stuck out is, you know, when people talk about what does it mean to get outside of, you know, the corporate environment that I came from and institutional investing and get inside of a small, medium sized business is really just like getting to know people on a personal level. That's how you build rapport and trust. And I just remember that conversation was like being really fun and invigorating that that's the type of stuff you spend time on in a small business is like not everything is about executing. It's just about getting to know your team. Was that a different environment that you had at the private equity level where it was less focused on the people or the part of the business that that person is running and more the ins and outs of the business and maybe more focused on maybe too high a level where you don't really get exposure to that at the at the firm level? Yeah, I think... I mean, that's... Look, if you're not in the business, and that's ultimately, I think, what I like came to the conclusion is as much as you know, PE firms will say, hey, like we're super operationally focused, yet yes, that's the case. And some firms are better than others. But even the teams that have you know, operational teams that deploy into portfolio companies is usually you know, one or two days a month or maybe a little bit more than that. But if you're not like literally employed and working at the business or you know, a consultant there four or five days a week, you're just never going to be building the relationships with those teams as deep as you might be from afar. And you're not ultimately responsible for getting things done. And I think that's that's what was exciting to me was when you're on a board or kind of at the associate level in a PE firm, you're like working with maybe the CFO and supporting, but you're not ultimately like making hiring decisions or making talent acquisition and talent allocation decisions. You know, like who's going to work on this project or how can I elevate this person if they're really doing really well or how can I design the role that they want is going to leave them fulfilled and excited and want to be with their company long term. And I think ultimately like the PE firms have to leave those decisions to the portfolio companies. That's just like the way everything's structured and it's the PE firm's job to motivate and incentivize their management teams, but also get out of the way and let management teams make the management portfolio level decisions. And so when it comes down to like, if that's what you want to be doing, you have to work inside of a business, like as much as some PE firms will tell you, like we're super operationally focused, you know, it's pretty binary in my mind. It's like, you're either at the business or you're advising and motivating it. And for me, I think ultimately I felt like I wanted to be out of business. During your time at Stanford, when you were considering search fund versus PE or other opportunities, were there a few opportunities at PE firms that would actually hire you as part of the the team at the portfolio company level? Did those opportunities come up? Or did you still only see really the operationally focused firms recruit you or have to see those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly... I think, look, some of those those jobs are really good. I think where you... You know who who's paying your salary actually can matter because if you're, you know, if you're on PE salary, sometimes there can be tension between the CFO and the management team at the portfolio company where they feel like you know if you're if you're getting reimbursed, they they feel like you know they're eating costs that they don't necessarily want to eat. But I think that there are good jobs where PE firms are hiring kids out of business school a little bit more and more to deploy into portfolio companies for like a year or two at a time. I think if it's, it's uh, hey, you're going to manage three or four companies and sort of be an internal consultant, I think that isn't as appealing because again, you're not there. But there are PE firms where it's now like, hey, go take this job at this company for two or three years and then we'll move you to the next firm and we'll move you to the next firm. I think those roles are 
pretty interesting. I think ultimately for me, it felt still kind of like not all the way there. You know, you don't have full ownership. For me, it was sort of like, you know, go back to the firm I had been at, great experience, love the team, like lots of opportunity for growth there, obviously super high paying jobs, or kind of go all the way and like go try and acquire and lead a business myself and you know, with a group of investors. I didn't feel like the programs that were trying to thread the needle for me were as appealing because I, I think I knew that I have enough of a like grass is always greener mentality or like looking around that I sort of did it halfway. I would wish I had gone all in. So tell us about your search. How did it go? How'd you feel in the middle of it getting started and then getting into a, a few deals and LOIs and just can you walk us through like the emotional journey of your search? Yeah, yeah. And and I took, you know, a little bit of a different path through search. So coming out of school and our class was 2020. So there was a bit of like decisions deferred for me in May and April as the world was changing pretty quickly and pretty drastically. But ultimately, I decided not to go back to investing and go into search. And when I graduated, I just kind of had a sense I wanted to do something a little more personal. A lot of people raising from a bunch of investors, all of whom are great, many of whom I know. But I felt like I wanted to create a smaller group around me in hopes that that would create more sort of partnership. And I think with the idea that, hey, if I have two or three people backing me out of the gate, they'll really push stuff down to me. We can figure stuff out together. We can get on a weekly or twice a month cadence that really gets deeper versus having like 10 or 15 people. So basically what I did was I approached two investors that I got to know that I that I liked and admired and had good reputations and basically said, Hey, like I don't know exactly what my search is going to look like. I think I want to do something smaller and can you guys support me in that and really just be like become mentors and advisors and let's to some extent co-create. I think candidly, like I got a lot of great advice and perspective, but all investors in the search firm community are super busy, you know, they've got investments across a ton of different paths. And so it's on you ultimately to prosecute ideas, you know, they'll throw ideas out, but you got to run stuff down. And I think that's a good experience. Like investors shouldn't be spoon feeding people they're backing during searches, because ultimately, like as an operator, you got to be able to make decisions and do things for yourself. But yeah, so I started searching in like, August of 2020. And the idea was spend a couple of months working with two, three individual investors. And then by the end of the year, form a larger group and probably raise some capital to go after the industry that I was most excited about. I just wanted time out of the gate to explore and define what I wanted to do. And that's why I didn't raise money out of the gate. It was sort of, hey, let's let's wait a few months. And ultimately, as I got into that, you know, we were looking at industries, we were starting to source. And I, I just kind of realized it's really hard to find a deal. And for me, you know, structuring, choosing your investors. You know, I had been thinking about doing a permanent equity vehicle because I think there's a lot of benefits to be said around owning for the long term. That level of commitment from investors, that level of structuring upfront to me started to feel cart before the horse. And I was lucky enough to still have enough money, not by no means to buy a business, but like to keep my lights on during the search. I wasn't traveling much. It was COVID. I wasn't spending a lot of money. So ultimately, what I ended up doing was continuing to work and talk with my investors on a, you know, every week, every other week basis, but basically said, Hey, like, I'm not going to raise search capital. I'm going to keep searching on my own. And we'll put together a capital when we find the deal. And for me, that ended up being a fortunate decision because it allowed me to look at smaller businesses. I was very much 
open and happy to have acquired a two, three, four, five million dollar EBITDA businesses like a lot of my traditionally funded search friends are doing. But I also had a bit more of a geographic focus and you know, look, it's hard to find a deal. And so if you can look at something smaller that can whatever you can do to be able to look at more deals, if it's a smaller deal and you can use SBA structure because you know you haven't raised capital and locked yourself into traditional mandate, it ended up working out for me because ultimately the deal I bought was smaller plus or minus a million dollars of EBITDA and was able to do it with an SBA structure. And you know, had I raised traditional search capital up front, that would have been too small. So yeah, I would say my search evolved in that, you know, I thought the capital structure I was going to put in place was one. And ultimately I ended up using a different different capital structure to acquire the business. And I think honestly, you know, looking back, the thing I feel happiest about and best about is not necessarily what type of deal I ended up buying, you know, more control, less control, self-funded not, but rather that I, by deferring raising capital because I was lucky to have enough savings to do so, I was just able to look at more businesses in a, in a hard acquisition environment. You know, being able to look at more businesses, I think, is beneficial to increasing your odds of finding a deal that you can get done. And going through the whole process of running a search and buying a company, are there any kind of high-level takeaways you've had from that experience that you would you would share with other searchers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, and this comes up in a lot of aspects for me in life is like, look, there's, so there are several defined search fund paths and there are emerging number of a little bit less structured, less defined search fund paths. And the reality is like, there are pros and cons to all of them. And I just think it's really important that searchers consider all of them at some level of depth before deciding which path you want to go down, depending on the community you're coming from, whether it's Twitter or Stanford, like certain paths are kind of the the chosen path or the path that's most popular. And I think there's like tons of merits to that. I mean, like there's a reason that search fund model hasn't evolved a ton in 30 years at Stanford because like it works and a lot of people are incredibly successful even today doing it. But that doesn't mean that like each individual shouldn't think a little bit about the other paths and ultimately determine what's best for them. And and then I think related to that, like, okay, well, how do you, you know, you can go read and how, how do you actually determine what the best path for you is, I think it is important as much as you can to dip your toes in the water, like whether that means you actually start sourcing and are kind of like playing brokers and owners by saying that you're looking to buy a business when you're still in school, and maybe you're not, or maybe you're still at your full time job, like, maybe don't do that. But you can find ways to get your hands on deals in different size ranges, you know, in different industries, some of which lend themselves more towards traditional or self funded or permanent equity structures. And just, I think giving yourself more of a flavor in reality of what stuff is, is really beneficial. You know, I think it's easy to read cases and go to panels and stuff like that. But I think if you can get a deeper dive on a couple of opportunities that are maybe more representative of the types of businesses that get bought in the different structures, you'll get a better idea of like what type of business you want to run. What does your CEO role look like? Or what does your ideal CEO look, role look like? And as you start to inform the answers to that question, that's going to drive what type of structure ultimately might be right for you. So tell us about the business you bought. Yeah. So I bought a business called System 6. We are outsourced accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, HR, bill pay services for small and medium-sized businesses. So our core service offering is bookkeeping and accounting. So on an ongoing basis, we're not filing taxes 
at year end. We do do you know, sales and use state and local taxes throughout the year on a monthly, quarterly basis, depending on the jurisdiction you're in. But look, the core service is we are going to maintain your books for you on an ongoing basis. That means recording transactions. It means reconciling, means closing the books on a monthly basis. So at the end of every month, you know, you know what your revenue and your net income and your EBITDA or whatever type of business you're in, you know, you know what your metrics are that you're paying attention to. And then basically anything else that falls into the traditional finance department that a small or medium-sized business owner honestly doesn't want to do, process payroll, pay bills, you know, send invoices, we'll we'll take that on and end up becoming, you know, a remote outsourced finance department really for the for the businesses that we're serving. So from a size perspective, we're you know just over a million dollars of EBITDA. We're 24 people and growing, about 160 clients and growing. And like I said, you know, we in the tax accounting world, there's a distinction around are you a CPA firm, meaning are you filing taxes? You know, we don't do that. We don't do audit attestation work. We're just doing the ongoing accounting needs for small and medium-sized businesses. And our, our clients range between like mid-high six figures of revenue to five million dollars, I would say, is our traditional sweet spot. You know, we have a couple of businesses that are 10, 15 million in re- revenue, some venture-backed businesses, a private equity-backed business. But you know the bread and butter is sort of small to medium sized businesses in that one to five six seven million dollar range. And so I knew you did a lot of your search remote. How much interaction with the owner and then the eventual team did you have at each stage of your deal process? Yeah, I mean it ended up being an important part of the process, and I was lucky that you know the time I was going through the process was like twenty twenty one. You know things were starting to slow down where I was able to travel and people were comfortable with with that and everything. So yeah, I mean, so the owner that I worked with is pretty classic search fund story, built this business from zero over 13 years, cares a ton, cared and still cares a ton for his team, was evaluating other offers from more like regional accounting firms that are trying to get into the outsourced accounting space and was you know nervous to sell to entities like that because he was worried about what would happen to his team and culture. So yeah, I mean, it, it ended up becoming definitely a two-way interview process. Let's see, we signed an LOI. And then right after signing the LOI, I went out and spent like two or three days with him in Michigan where he lives. And that was going on hikes, going out to some nice meals. You know, His wife had like a awesome laundry list of questions to ask me and like kind of grilled me and that like that that often happens in search fund world because you know a lot of ways they built the business together and they really care for their team and wanted to make sure i had the right intentions around my plans for the business so i spent several days with them and then you know there are three great leaders inside our business you know people who've risen over time and have different sets of responsibilities from a management position inside system six and the the owner got all of us together and wanted us to spend a day or two together before the deal progressed too far beyond LOI. And, you know, he wanted them to get a chance to get to know me. And he kind of gave them the opportunity to ask questions and said, look, if they don't like you, they don't want to work with you, Chris, then like, we don't, you know, we won't move forward. So I give him, Jeremy, great guy, a lot of credit for focusing on the people. Because at the end of the day, look, we're a service business. So people is everything. If our team's not happy and excited, we're not going to deliver great service to our clients. So I think it was good of him to make sure, you know, I don't think anybody was like 
oh yes, absolutely, Chris is the best thing since sliced bread. But I think he wanted them to have the opportunity to say hard no. And then if it wasn't a hard no, know that you know I was going to have to come in and, and prove myself and earn trust, which I'm still very much working on today. But there was, yeah, some serious team time before we got the deal done. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, just sometimes timing is fortunate. System 6 does a once a year team in-person gathering. And that was right around when we were closing and we were close enough that I was able to come meet 60, 70% of the team. And I think that did a lot to just put some humanity behind what's an intimidating process for me and also for the team. You know, people were nervous. I was nervous. And when you've actually met someone, spent some time on a boat with them, had a beer, it makes it a lot easier on day one to like jump on a Zoom call and, and start learning when you know them a little bit as a person. Yeah, that would, that would help a lot. I can imagine. What kinds of questions did his wife ask you? It was mainly around the team and what were my plans the first six months? Like, are you trying to make changes to the team? And, you know, how do you think about like team evolution, right? Like, we're 24 people today. We've hired three people since I've been here. Four people, one starting in a couple of weeks. We hope to be 30, 40, 50. Like, they knew that I had growth ambitions and that the, the size of the team would change. But I think they wanted to understand, you know, how I thought about the existing team and how, you know, how can you grow while continuing to have the team that you have and like make sure there's still a place for them no matter how the business is evolving. I also remember like getting asked, you know, hey, if someone shows up in two or three years with a, a big fancy purchase price, like, are you going to flip the business? Rachel asked me that. I have a very serious girlfriend. They asked me about her, what I saw in her and why we were dating. And yeah, just like wanted to get to know me, you know, as a person, because these euphemisms you hear, like for a lot of business owners, they are like parting ways with their child in a lot of ways. So of course, they've got serious questions. And I'm glad they were asking those because it showed they were serious about selling and showed they cared. Yeah, definitely showed they cared. That's yeah, pretty clear based on this question. It's a good a good one for the case study one day, you know, like sitting around with two people you didn't really know, you know, after a couple of glasses of whiskey getting grilled and answering personal questions. Definitely something I think the three of us, you know, even now would look back and chuckle on. Yeah, I love everything about that. That's fantastic. How has the team received you over the last few months? So once a quarter, the leadership team, so it's me and three others get together in person for a couple of days. And, you know, that's a tradition that I'm stepping into. I mean, everything here for the most part that I'm describing was already in place. So, you know, credit is or, or criticism, whatever, not, not necessarily do my way. But, you know, so we had a team summit last week and we actually did a bit of a like, hey, let's review Chris and the, the, the business system six has been doing, you know, quarterly reviews based off of traction for a couple of years now. So it was really just like scoring me and then providing feedback on those scores. I think the, the feedback it so far has been like, you know, Chris has done a great job of carrying on a lot of what System 6 did before, showing kindness to the team, caring for the team. You know, some of the constructive feedback is like, hey, it's it's been an energy shift in that I've been spending more time on the business, you know, pushing sales more than I think the business in the last couple of years. And so like not going too fast is something I'm I'm cognizant of and got feedback on. But I think for the most part, I've just been trying to like be really friendly and nice and learn. And, you know, we haven't really made any big changes yet. So for the most part, I think the, the team's been happy and relieved that there weren't any big drastic changes made. I've gotten some some really nice feedback. Feels good. Like, you know, it's good to hear 
constructive stuff, but it also, it's been nice to get, you know, we do things like Christmas bonuses and profit share and some of the feedback I've gotten around that has, has been fun. And that's why you do this, right? Like you're, you're in small business ownership to work with team members and ultimately like provide an awesome place for people to work and build a career and find balance in their life. Yeah. I love that. And I remember talking about, you know, compare, we talked a lot about comparing your private equity work to what you, at the time you were searching, you were kind of guessing what your life in running a small business would look like. Can you just describe how different your day is versus your time in private equity versus now actually running a company, like the types of problems you wake up and thinking about or challenges and how's your day look? How do you feel at the end of the day? How do the two worlds compare? Yeah, I think, and look, this is something that I think I need to get better at and is probably a perpetual challenge for every small business owner. But I think, I mean, the biggest difference, right, is like at the age I'm at and that, you know, the age I was at in, in private equity before is control over how you're spending your day and, you know, what you want to spend time on. And in PE, for the most part, you're working on deals, especially as a junior mid-level person. And those are on timelines. And those mean that there's not necessarily like a ton of optionality on what you're going to work on today. It's like, this is the thing I need to get done because we're going to an investment committee next week or, you know, we're putting in a bid or whatever. And so you kind of know what to work on and then it's just go do it a lot versus now, you know, I'm working maybe not exactly the same hours I was working, but I'm still working a lot. But look, there's there's stuff that comes up every day. There's things I need to respond to in Microsoft Teams internal emails, I need to get back on client emails, sales calls. But you do have, you know, that's probably 30 40% of my day. But then there's a big chunk of like, what are the projects we're working on that I want to spend time on? And look, learning how to prioritize that, right? Like important, not urgent. How do you get into that category? The classic matrix. So that I would say is probably the, the biggest difference is that, you know, you have control over how you're spending your day. I mean, other differences, like I'm talking to customers a lot. I'm the salesperson. I was not necessarily doing a ton of that in in my investing job. So talking to prospects, learning about their business, learning about their problems and what we can hopefully solve for them and personnel decisions. I mean, I I wasn't doing any personnel work at a junior, like mid-level investing. And now it's hiring decisions. You know, like we've put someone through a process. Do we want to hire this person? you know, compensation stuff that we're starting to look at now that it's year end, like what's the right level of bonuses that are going out. So yeah, like real decisions that are have implications immediately. I I think you get a lot more of versus investing. It's like, hey, you're, you know, you're working on a deal, you're building a model, you're talking about growth assumptions, you're talking about legal nuances and, you know, risk mitigation. And, and you, know, you don't necessarily know the impact of those for a period of time versus some of the decisions I'm making now, you know, our hiring decisions or compensation decisions, or do we want to take on that prospect? Like, we're either going to feel the pain from that, if that prospect ends up not being fun, or that team member doesn't work out, like, we're going to know the impact of that a lot more quickly. And that's, yeah, that's, that's exciting. That's operating. Yeah. Is there like a a specific moment or memory from the last few months of operating where this happened to you or happened to your team and you're like, oh my gosh, this is cool. Like this is this is what I signed up for. This is the this is what makes this exciting. And it's like the aha moment for you. 
Honestly, I would say the best thing, you know, we did last year, we did an NPS score, you know, teams, client survey, right? You're asking the question on a scale of, you know, zero to 10, how likely would you be to recommend our business to others? We did that again this year in August. I, of course, would love our response rate to be higher, but like we got a bunch of great feedback and passing that on to team members. And then, you know, I do a check in with new clients. 30 and 75 days after they sign with us. Hey, how are we serving? What could we be doing to serve you better? And for me, it's great to get like both constructive feedback, but also really good feedback and then passing that on to team members and just knowing, I think, how much people love to hear that like they're doing a great job and hearing that from clients. Those moments stand out when we get, you know, our close rates when it comes to new prospects are much higher from referrals as is the case in all professional services. But when we get an existing client who sends us someone with an email of like, Hey, please meet system six. They're fantastic. They've really helped my business digitize over the last couple of years. And then like seeing that come through, those are fun moments because it both reaffirms to me that like we're doing a good job and I like to see that, you know, as the business owner, but then I also know that's going to make the team happy when they see someone affirming their work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to think if I can give you any, you know, one thing that's like super concrete. You know, I would say one thing is like candidly, I think there's an exciting opportunity for us at System Six to serve the search fund community, and we've brought on a couple of search fund clients or firmer searchers who ended up doing a startup, and you know, got some really good feedback a couple of weeks ago from one self-funded searcher who bought a very traditional self-funded style business, you know, blue collar services a lot of pen and paper, we're helping them digitize and seeing that that's working for me has been super exciting because I think that's a great ecosystem for us to to grow into over time. Yeah, certainly can be. What's like an operating rabbit hole you're going down now? For us, the deepest thing for me to think about over the next six months is, I mean, it relates a little bit to what I just said, but it's like, who do we want to serve? What's our ideal customer profile? And there's so many different angles to that. There's like all the economic stuff that I can run in Excel around churn rates and profitability and size of that potential market, right? Like we serve probably 10 to 15 industries, depending on how you group it, you know, between five, 6% of revenue, our biggest industries are probably like 10% of revenue. So we, we don't have a very defined target customer and it's really interesting. Like you want to have some focus, you want to have somewhat of a niche so that you can tailor sales and marketing as we start to build out those functions, you know, so that we can build internally consistency and service delivery so that we can build expertise within industry so that we can deliver more value to our clients. Like if we serve a ton of people in this industry, then we're going to be really good at setting up and maintaining your chart of accounts and telling you about your margins and your KPIs. But there's just like, there's so many nuances to that, right? There's the Everything I just talked about was very much like MBA business school analytics. But then there's like, okay, well, who do we like to serve? You know, like who makes the team happy? Who doesn't make the team happy? You know, in a professional services business, if you're no matter how profitable your clients are, if your team doesn't enjoy serving clients in a certain industry, like that's not long term sustainable. So spending time when talking to prospects, spending time talking to existing customers, there's like so much work to do here to define who we really want to go after. And it's not cut and dry. It's probably not going to be just one industry, but there's that's probably the the rabbit hole I've started to go down the farthest. I would say that in, in compensation. We have a, a profit share 
model, which I love that we do, and I'm like excited to carry it on. It, it sometimes gets pretty complicated, and anytime you have some sort of profit share model, there's like eighty thousand different scenarios and nuances and incentives and perverse incentives. And so, like thinking about how to potentially simplify that is exciting, but also any change comes with potential like incentives and stuff like that. So those are two two areas I'm starting to dig in on and kind of have endless paths. And ultimately, sometimes you just got to make decisions and go. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit more about profit sharing? Because there's probably an angle where... I don't know how you can like drill... Ideally, like, it, it filters down to the employee. Like It's some piece of the profit that that employee is impacting. Like If it's just broad profit, the employee may not be able to impact their bonus at the end of the year. But ideally, they could or in some way or some multiple or some yeah, like, method within profit sharing that they could affect that leads to their bonus. I don't know. How do you figure that stuff out? Yeah. So I mean, I think the first decision you have to make and when it comes to profit share, and this is just like, again, the, the way it, it's been it's been here historically is, are you going to pay out profit share in terms of you know, a percentage at an employee level, like, you know, some, per- something around gross profit from, you know, whether it's accounting or HVAC services, like gross profit from the work that that employee is doing. And so it kind of starts at the employee level in their book of business. However, you know, if it's some other type of business, maybe it has to relate to, you know, the customer service happiness of the revenue that they're covering as an account manager or something like, does it start at the employee level? Or in our case, what we do is we, set a fixed number of company profit. So, you know, we have a percentage of EBITDA that at the end of the quarter, like, you know, here's our, our gross EBITDA and then we're going to pay out X percent as profit share. And then that sets a pool. And then that's where our incentives start to kick in. So, okay, you know, the profit share for this quarter is X thousands of dollars. And, you know, that gets divvied up based on, you know, how much your book of business generates from a gross profit perspective. You know, we have metrics like we do KRAs. So people are doing quarterly reviews of each other. And based on your score, your percentage of that profit share of that pool can swing up and down. You know, how much did your margins improve from last quarter? It's like we basically set the fixed pool and then based on your the size of your book of business, dollars get allocated. And then there's like all these kickers that go up and down based on incentives I just talked about, like improving metrics, scores from team members, scores of your clients and when it comes to NPS surveys. So it's that's high level how I would think about it. It's like, does it kind of start with employee performance or does it start with company performance? And then it's kind of back allocated. So I like the idea for us that it starts with company performance because I think it minimizes some of the danger you can have when it's truly employee level because you can get people being competitive and like it can create an eat what you kill mentality versus for us it like starts with company profitability and then it gets allocated from there but you know this stuff is always has a lot of angles and is nuanced and candidly like i'm still figuring out and figuring out all all the implications and seeing where we have some perverse incentives that may need to get tweaked but also like no model is ever perfect and i think most importantly like we're sharing our profits with our team and our team loves that and that's something I want to keep doing because it's, I think, how you have employees that have long tenure when they feel like they participate in the business. Your team is also set up in a unique way where there's not many people who are full-time and they enjoy that. They enjoy that it's not the full 40 hours and you've offered 
you meaning System 6 has offered a lot of flexibility to employees over the last few years. Can you talk a little bit about some of those flexibilities that you're preserving or maybe are going to add on to? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, that is probably when you think about our culture, that's probably like the core of the culture, which is, you know, System 6, like within reason, and there's like, you can talk about this stuff, but at its core, we're here to facilitate the career and the work-life balance that you want. You know, accounting as a whole is known to be an industry where like people get burned out. I mean, we're about to go into it. And for me, that means slow down on the sales side, but like there is definitionally a busy season in accounting, you know, right after the year ends, most of our clients are, you know, calendar year from a fiscal perspective. So like for us, January and February, we're sprinting to get all the books closed so that we can get everything over to tax preparing CPAs to hit you know, tax deadlines come March and April. But the point is like our culture is very much, like I said, sort of facilitate what you want. So we have a lot of team members who were working 50, 60 hours at other companies and that was like too much for them. So they're, they're in a season of life now where they only want 30 hours. And you know we have margin thresholds and we have utilization metrics that you know, play into that profit share I was describing. And so we monitor our team, but if, if you want 30 hours or you want 25 hours, like we're absolutely happy to provide that for you. And if that means you don't want to take on another client right now because you feel like you're at max, like as long as your margins and your utilization and the things that we monitor are great, then we're happy to say, yeah, like we're not going to send another client your way. Because I think, especially in a business where there's client relationships, keeping team happy and keeping them engaged in the way that they want to be is just good for maximizing tenure of your employees, which creates stability of the client relationships. So, you know, we've had somebody on our team right now who's like, she's great. Her husband's business is taking off. So she's spending, wants to step away in terms of how many hours she's spending with System 6. And that means we're taking some of her clients and putting them onto other teams so that, you know, she can have the workload that she wants for both businesses now. And, you know, we're happy to provide that because for the clients that she'll still have, we're going to do really well with those clients. And that's that's better than saying no and then having her probably leave and potentially lose some of those clients. Yeah, certainly that's a worthy trade-off. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's something I didn't fully, I think, appreciate during diligence. And so what it means is like, yeah, we just got to... I really now appreciate how powerful that is. And so I don't want to try and change that. And that just means we got to build an awesome hiring capability and onboarding and training and ultimately retention because you know for us to grow the way I'd love to see us grow which is like healthily not insane clearly we need to continue to expand our team because I don't want to push more work on an existing team because that would really be antithetical to like the way that you know we like to run our business yeah certainly what are you most excited for over the next like 6 months or a year or so I mean, some of it is is what I just described because the way we've hired historically has been a bit more like, hey, let's let's post and let's see what we get, and you know, we'll tailor our client intake to what we're able, how much capacity we're able to add, and you know, I want to build a more proactive recruiting effort, and I think that means you know, thinking a bit about where are we posting jobs and like where can we start proactively reaching out to people. So I'll be spending a bunch of my time in the next six months on hiring and building out our our people processes for attracting and then training and onboarding talent. So 
I'm excited about that. You know, we already have some stuff in place on training, and I think it does a pretty good job in onboarding. So it's it's more attracting and finding talent. So that's exciting. And then I think, I mean, we I we used to write proposals in Microsoft Word and send them out manually, and we're transitioning to more modern sales proposal software. And as someone who does all the sales work, that's really exciting. It's just making my life a lot easier. We don't have a CRM. We'll be getting that in place over the next few months. So some of the like very basic tech streamlining I'm excited for because that'll that'll simplify things. But on a bigger picture, I think the hiring stuff and also starting to be more proactive with sales and marketing. We haven't had a sales and marketing budget in the past. We've still been growing 20-ish percent the last couple of years. So you know, we're fortunate to be able to grow without that. But it'll be fun to think about how do we want to go target customers to, to try and maintain and accelerate our growth. Yeah, certainly. Moving into some closing questions. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? A shortened college appropriate version of for me, what was the best class for me at business school? It's called Managing Growing Enterprises. And the version I took was taught by Graham Weaver, who's one of the most well-known professors at Stanford. He runs and has built Alpine, which is a pretty successful middle market private equity business that does a lot of work around hiring and attracting and motivating sort of younger talent than most PE operators and putting them into seats of, of small and medium-sized PE-owned businesses. I would teach that class. And there were three reasons in preparing for today that I, that I wrote down. I think the first is like, it was really good. You know, like a lot of, a lot of business school classes, there's guest lecturers in every class. And so it was really good to see just real-life examples. And he did a good job of bringing in both diversity, but also diversity of age. Like he tried to bring in a lot of people who are closer to school. And so I think for a college, it would be, you know, bringing people who are in their mid-20s and talk about all the different paths they've taken and just seeing, for me, experiences from people who were younger and closer to where you are was very powerful. So that was one reason. The second reason was, you know, we spent the first five minutes of every class doing like what I thought at the time was cheesy, like Tony Robbins, sort of like personal growth exercises. You know, if you had a genie and you could accomplish anything you want, what would it be? Go write it down and then talk about it with your neighbor. And I think that stuff feels like really intimidating and cheesy when you see it on Twitter, but to actually just be forced to do it was incredibly powerful for me. So I think bringing that, you know, you tailor it a little bit to the 21 year old in college. But again, like bringing examples of, people who you can really relate to because they're 25, not 50, and already incredibly successful. And then also breaking down what seems very intimidating with some of the like personal growth thinking exercises, I think, for me, was really powerful. You know, what sticks out the most is he said, the most important journey in your life is really like in your brain, you know, the way you're thinking and how can you improve the way you think and improve the way you think about yourself. And I just think bringing some of that to me when I was 21, like I, I would have really benefited from that. That sounds like it was an awesome class. Yeah, there's, there's definitely an interesting piece to the, the age diversity. Because if you get folks who are you know, that 25 to 35 range, they're a little closer to the students. They're also probably dealing with problems that that student is going to encounter more quickly than the person who's 50 and is now dealing with a whole different set of problems now that their business is successful. If you go to the 50-year-old person the 25 or 20-year-old student is going to think like that they didn't encounter those problems that they're about to encounter. And that when they hit that problem at 25 or 26, they're like, well, this person, this guest speaker, they didn't encounter this problem, even though they did, but they just didn't talk about it because it wasn't as like immediately on their mind. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's what oftentimes I would think of like in some of the other classes where you have the, you know, 60 year old Baron talking about, it's like, well, yeah, you started your company in 1980 and like, it was a very different world then. And so of course, getting into cable in the 1980s was like super successful. It doesn't, it doesn't like discredit all the things they accomplished, but it was a lot more relatable when the person's a lot closer to you. So that was, that was really helpful for me. Absolutely. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Yeah, I think, I mean, this somewhat ties to stuff that we explored in that class, but it was really around, is there a better or a best path? For me, I think when I was in my 20s out of school, it was like, there's one way to be successful. And I didn't know what that was, but I, and I was still exploring it. And I didn't necessarily think the path that I want I was on was that, but I found myself sort of expecting that like, hey, there's one way to, to live this life. And I'm going to figure out what that is for me. And I think ultimately, you know, what I've changed my mind on is like, look, one, there's, you know, there's no best path. It's about what's the best path for you. But I think even more importantly than that, it's like, there's honestly probably several paths that are the best for you. And this is me speaking to myself, like, don't beat yourself up forever thinking about trying to find the absolute right and best path. You know, at some point, you just like make a decision, you jump in, and then you're on a path and you like, go to the absolute best that you can with that path. And then if at some point it's like really not working out, it might be really painful to change. But change does happen. People do shift their life. And whether that's personal decisions or professional decisions, you can make changes if what you ultimately decided isn't working out. So I put a lot of stress on myself trying to figure out like what's the perfect design for me to put in place for my life. And I think the reality is like there's a lot of careers you can choose that you'll ultimately be happy in. And you know, you make a decision when you need to make a decision and then go go proceed from there. Have you found any interesting or reliable way to experiment with different paths where maybe there's like three paths that you think are most interesting? Have you thought about ways that you could almost use process of elimination to cross paths off or experiment and try something for two to three months to find out if it might in fact work for you or might not? I think for me, what it really was you need to get really deep relationships with people on different paths so that you can get beyond the like once a quarter mentorship call and like really ask the deep questions that you're thinking about with certain paths and like get someone who's willing to be vulnerable with you. And like, cause every, you know, anybody you talk to, I don't think anybody thinks that like what they did was the absolute perfect thing. So, and a lot of this happens in business school where you get close to people who are on different paths and then you can get people to open up and be like, tell me about what you really like about what you did or are doing and what you really don't like. So for me, it was more about like getting close to resources that would allow you to like ask really deep questions because like three or four months, you're not going to learn as much as you are from someone who's been in it for 10 years. And you just have to get that person to be open enough with you to get real insights from them, not just like, you know, the stuff they talk about at a recruiting session. You know, how can you get deeper with people? That's a good one. I like that. What's the best business you've ever seen? You know, I think it's easy to say like business stuff you look at from afar is the best business you've ever seen. So I tried to think about stuff I'd actually seen from the inside and spend some time on. So I'm going to go with a business called Emporos Systems, E-M-P-O-R-O-S. And it was a search fund business that I worked at during my internship, acquired through the traditional search fund model. Eric Christensen is an awesome CEO that I got to work with for a couple of months. And it was 
niche a vertical SaaS business, which is becoming very popular in search and lots of other investing ecosystems. And it like all the attributes of those types of businesses, I really saw play out. So they did point of sale software to pharmacies inside of hospitals. So the pharmacy inside the hospital, or maybe the hospital has an outpatient pharmacy, and there's a pharmacy there. And they were the point of sale there. And like they had a lot of product challenges. I was there, they were aware of them, they were working on them, trying to move from on-prem to the cloud. But the reality was like, is a very small cost to the client is absolutely mission critical point of sale inside a pharmacy hospital. And they're riding great tailwinds of, you know, more outpatient pharmacies were being deployed by hospital systems. They had a pretty good distribution partnership with some of the large hospital ERP systems. So it was just one of those situations where like your software, once you're deployed, it's really hard to switch out for another piece of software, even if the product isn't perfect. I think the product's gotten a lot better since I was there because I've been working on it. But I just you know saw up close and personal how sort of small cost vertical software can be really compelling from a business opportunity because there's a lot of growth and there's not a lot of churn. With that as your best business, is there a reason you didn't focus more on software businesses? Or did you find out that perhaps the business you acquired has some similar subscription recurring revenue type dynamics at play? No, I mean, it's, it's a fair question. and Like something I, I think about, I mean, I, I do still think that like software is a brilliant business model. And there's a reason a million people are looking to invest in it. Valuation, so that business was bought in like 2016, 2017. So valuation dynamics for those businesses have changed dramatically. And that that changes the ballgame a little bit just from a investing and if you're trying to operate and create wealth, like it can be harder to do if you have to pay more upfront. It doesn't mean that's like there's still fantastic out- outcomes happening inside smaller software businesses. You know, I did target some for me, I was also trying to stay in the Bay Area. And so that meant, you know, a lot of the businesses that I was looking at, that were local to the Bay Area, can be harder if you're trying to buy sort of a search fund style software business because you're competing with big tech from a recruiting perspective. I mean, all that is changing with remote now, but it is a little bit harder if you're trying to buy a business in the Bay Area and software to be in the search fund ecosystem. It becomes a lot more like venture investing. And that's obviously not the game I was playing. We do some custom like date more like data science work than hard software work internally. But I think over time as low code, I love reading some of the stuff we see in our ecosystem about that, whether it's Nikashka and others, like as low code just deploys more through the ecosystem, we're going to use things like Airtable and Zapier for our clients. Like we do a lot of point of sale data, download it, scrape it, transport it into QuickBooks. And we can start doing some of that through SaaS products. And that can start to get us to look a little bit more like a software business. You know, we have, we're paid on a weekly basis by our clients. So we have recurring revenue in that structure, you know, and we use as many automations as we can inside QuickBooks between the bank feed and QuickBooks or zero, but we're ultimately a service business, but we do have some tech enablement capabilities that I think give us a little bit of the software dynamics, but look, you know, like we're not scalable the way software is, we got to hire people. And yeah, that's like, Software is a great business. There's a reason for it. There's a reason a lot of people want to invest in it. So yeah, it was, it was a great business that I saw. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chris, for coming on the podcast. It's been fun to chat with you again. This is probably our 20th chat or something like that, but it's been fun to record one and, and get, to, get to hear your thoughts a little more publicly. So I'm excited for you to keep growing your business and keep chatting about it. Yeah, look, I, I, this was 
awesome to chat with you. I hope it's helpful for your listeners. And I look forward to staying in touch with you, you know, on and off the podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Livebook Bank, Hood and & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about the Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. 